Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name is Peter Bond, and today on the show, we've wrapped up our read-through of Reaper's Gale. So, as always, we have our, our mailbags through. So, I've invited some special guests on the show so we can talk through book seven uh, with spoilers and in regards to the whole series writ large. Um, so, we'll be talking about those 10 books in total. So, if that's not something you want to hear, then... See you later. So with me today, I've invited two illustrious Malazan YouTubers. First, we have Quick Jen. How are you doing? How are you feeling today? Hey, Peter. I'm doing pretty good. Glad to have you on the show. And along with her, we have the illustrious Cal from uh, a Terry Goodkind-esque YouTube channel. You may have seen him. <laughs> it's only, How are you doing it's today, only named after him. I hope it's not Terry Goodkind-esque because that's... A little insulting. A different, a di- a a different thing for you to say to me, as you would <laughs> say is. in a Tombstone. But yeah, it's really good and kind. Um, getting close to, oh, I, I haven't checked in a little bit. I think I'm getting close to 300 subscribers now. So who? Both of, both of you guys have great channels, and the little links will be in our episode description. But today we're talking about Reaper's Gale, and I was just talking about this on the Mailbag Show. Um, and I have to say this has uh, never been one of my favorite books, and I felt particularly frustrated with it my first time through. The good news is, rather predictably, I think the second time I read through the book, I had a much better time. And I think largely because when I first read the book, I was very excited to get to dueling with Rulad or really kind of returning to a lot of the ki- storylines I really connected with in Midnight Tides. So I felt really frustrated the first time I came through the book, but I think knowing kind of the pace or knowing that we weren't going to be kind of returning, so to speak, that we were going to start all these different stories or kind of the scope of what this book was, I felt like I was definitely able to enjoy the book a lot more and I had a much better time reading this book. However, I don't feel like it's one of my favorites or anything. And both of you have talked about this book as being one you think highly of or a favorite of yours. So... Jen, I'd be curious about how you think about this book and kind of what draws you to it. What what, what makes you think this stands out, you know? I, I have a very hard time choosing a favorite, but usually if I have to list them, this one is right at the top, if not the top spot for me. Wow. Um, mm. And I understand that frustration. I think I, I felt had some similar feelings the first time through, um, especially with that first half. But mm. I also think that part of that is intentional that that frustration is reflecting the frustration of so many of the characters in the book itself. Mm. And that really even the parts that are not pleasant to read or that may not be fun to read are extremely powerful. And, and to me, they all come together thematically really well. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and the, but I think honestly, more than that, really, this is that, this is that moment that I think I'd been waiting for for seven books where suddenly all of these disparate storylines and all of these characters that we've gotten to know all over this world are finally starting to come together. It's the beginning of the end. And that's exciting. Yeah. Cal, I want to I want to hear what you think, but I do want to build on what you said right there, because for me in book six was the first time you're like, oh, I get it. Maybe all these plot lines are going to come together like this is what the books are about. And I really think. And I think that's what 
contributed to my kind of frustration because I was like, let's do it. Let's like make a big series, you know, and, and um, it doesn't happen really quickly. And then there's all these other storylines that get introduced in this book, of course. But um, no, I, I mean, I fully agree. Looking back on it, really, you're like, OK, really, this is tying up a bunch of loose ends, because from here on out, you know, you have told the hounds, which is a totally other thing. And then essentially the end of the series, you know, because nine and ten are, you know, whatever. So so it, it is 100 percent setting us up to, you know, put a bow on it, because a lot of these things we won't come back to meaningfully. I think it qualifies as the middle of the trilogy. Now I say yeah. I say trilogy loosely because I can count at least to mm. ten. Uh, so what what I mean by that is like the entire book is like one long Empire Strikes Back, but like the last hour of Empire Strikes Back, where everything bad starts to happen at the same time, and everyone meets mm. up on Bespin. It's like that level of everything is just starting to slip into place, but things keep going terribly the entire time. Um, hmm. So it's incredibly like the the leather stuff, like when we you leave it off at midnight tides, uh, roulette is just, you know, taken over, but we don't really know exactly what that means yet. And then we actually get to see it in detail here. And that's that's in us just like in the first three chapters. And so when people say that this book is boring, I, I can't imagine why that would be boring to get into just how everything is going. And then once you hit the second half of the book, you that's when you know that that's where the bone hunters are headed. And then we, uh, we get the famous unwitnessed speech. It's just, there's so many moments in this book that I go, fuck. Yes. It's, a, it's, it's a, one of the best parts of the book. I, 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 yeah, hundred percent in the mailbag. Someone asked what our favorite part of the book was. I said it was that speech. I feel like it just was it totally fooled and, and knowing the whole series, it just fires on all cylinders, you know? So it, it just is so important. So I think my favorite beat my chest moment comes in this book where Ublala Pung kneels down and says, lead me, war leader. I was like, okay, here we go. This is going to be dangerous, but all right, we're, we're in it now. Like mm-hmm. if, if Ublala is, is, is that much on board, all right, these Tableau are going to be a handful. I, I, I do <laughs> want to hear a little bit more about why you think it's, uh, I know you've long said it's one of your favorite books, Cal, but um, I will say, I don't know, what I, I, I do think I I've probably would have called the book boring or, or maybe still feel like there's parts, um, but I think it's it's not that there's nothing going on. It, I just think it's that at the start of the book, you do, are asked to yet again invest in a bunch of storylines that you have no context for why they're important at all. You know, and, and, and I do feel like that is a difficult thing in some ways. I mean, if you count up the new things that are just like, oh, by the way, we're going to talk about the shake. We're going to talk about the y'all. We're going to go to Drenay. We're going to talk about the Patriot. It's a lot of stuff that not only is new, but also I think... You know, it is really loosely tied. So, I mean, I think I appreciate I, I was able to make that leap easier this time. But I do think on the first time I was like, you know, I was like, what are we doing here? I thought I was going to come and hang out with Rulad again. And Rulad's barely in this book. You know, he's essentially a non-character in the book. You know, so I, I think I think you hit on the theme of the book there, though, because the theme of the book is is frustration and disillusion. Like mm. each each one of the characters goes through their absolute like worst moment and all of their sort of um, scales fall away from their eyes and then they either get up and move on or they die and that's everybody like the squads um tehal uh karsa rulad troll saren pedak everybody gets gets broken down in this book 
and it's there there each world falls apart and then you you have it that metaphor sort of made real with the bin tracked eye mass in the refugium because they do know it's a dream but it's still these newcomers coming into it are there it's the dissolution of the dream and in the dissolution of the dream the dream then becomes real <laughs> so i was Jim, what were you yeah, so i was gonna i was gonna add that what's interesting is that Unlike some of the other books in this series, all those complaints, I think, could still be made on the second read through because so many of those new storylines, they don't come back later. He's not introducing things that are ultimately going to be a major part of the endgame. They're there to flesh out the themes of this particular book and nothing more. Um, And so I I do understand that frustration. I, I think... At this point in the series, I, well, probably long before this point in the series, I had accepted I was in good hands. I was just along for the ride. And I think that's kind of all you can do with these books. No, and and I agree. I think, Cal, when you're talking about some of this thematic stuff and and like how, I mean, these disparate threads are connected thematically, right? I mean, more than they are in a plot level a lot of the times. And I think reading it through the second time, I was able to more be like, okay, well, I kind of just got to take this for what it is and see how these things are going to go and try and make these connections or make of make of it what I will. So I definitely wasn't really frustrated this time. I think it was just more that first time through when you're like trying to understand the tapestry and then, you know, you spend a lot of time with the all or whatever, which I think is an interesting storyline, if a bit nonplussing at times. But um (laughs) (laughs) understatement of the year but okay (laughs) when i talked about that frustration sort of being baked in being a part of this book it's um i don't know if this is the case for everybody but for me it's a much more emotional impact than even some of the stakes later on like the stakes in this book feel higher than at any other point in this series and emotionally and i think for me it's because when we look at this series and the sort of or not the series but this book and sort of the villains in this book they are so recognizable and the fights that people are engaged in and the futility of it are all things that I think each of us recognize from our own world and more than any of the other books this one feels very very connected to real world events. I, I, that's always a part of Malazan. It's there throughout. But I think for this one, it's stronger than for me anyways, than in any of the others, because they're not fighting a big bad guy. They're not fighting an enemy that can be faced. They're fighting systems and institutions. Hmm. And that's so easy, even as we're rooting for the all, we see that there are good people on the other side. But we also know that even if they succeed even if they are victorious over this particular army that this giant machine they're fighting is just going to keep sending more and more and more until eventually they're defeated that there is no real victory at the end of the day a personal theory of mine is that the reason that that storyline's in the book is because the alether army has to be out of the city when the bone hunters get there and um, so you, if you're going to have the army be away from the city, you may as well have it be interesting for the army to be away from the city. And okay, so you know there's steps and stuff, people that are out there, and then you get a a Lethiri and an Edor, and they're kind of the two sides of. Um, it's like the Lethiri chain of dogs, 
because anyone who may have survived that comes out on the other side. In this case, it was a remnant of the all when it was a remnant of the the Wiccans before. Mm. And um, they're going to tell the story of the great, you know, empire (laughs) that (laughs) that either wiped them out or walked them all the way to where they wanted to go. But yeah, I think that's the only reason it was included was because the big army had to be out of the city. So you might as well make it interesting. I think it's, yeah, I do think there's a possible, it's a logistical thing. Sometimes I do think there's like a weird attention to small logistical, uh, some logistical stuff. But I will say, I feel like the Red Mask thing is one of the bleakest storylines, you know? And I think, um, Jen, as you're touching on, you know, Steve sometimes says he doesn't like talking about politics too much, but I I, I find it a very humorous notion. It's a very political book, you know? But um, I find the whole idea very bleak because in some ways it, it, it's like, Oh, is resistance to this thing futile is or like, I don't know, it, it, it is a very dark message, you know, and I know that's kind of a reduction of it. But that is obviously a question that is being asked, you know, especially when you talk about the change from turning on red mask and like what it means to wield the blade like it's going to cut you too, in a sense, you know, I don't know. It, it It's a bummer book. So I really agree with you when you talk about how it's um, the stakes feel higher in this. But in some way, I would I feel like the stakes feel higher almost here than they do towards the end of the series in like a physical sense. I don't know, like a punch sort of way, because the end of the series, like there are a lot of great emotional moments, but it's also a more typical fantasy big ending. Right. There are like the whole world is at stake it's not actually something that most of us have ever experienced in our lives whereas this all all of the situations being faced in this book these are things that we can very easily make parallels to um things and, and events in the real world isn't isn't this book the the first book since i think what well, it would have to be gardens of the moon that nearly every single race is included in the in some way in the convergence because there, because a lot of them show up. You still have the Jag Hut. You still have the change them all are somewhere else. But I, I guess the Forkel Sale aren't there unless you count like the part Forkel Sale Soul and Kettle. But I feel like that's a real asterisk. Oh, you know, no, no, no. The Errant for one, mm. and uh, Kilmanderos. Yeah, and, you're right. And Setchalath, and you're right. Yeah, they're they're all there. But yeah, it's a that is the kind of trivia and information i rely on you for cal <laughs> yeah i'm very confused are you saying the errands of fork will assail i'm not in on this yes yes uh, this is this shocking news to me i always just thought it was just well, like kilmanderos is his mother right and kilmanderos is the one of the fork will assail um as athenai mm. like she's the one that they they worship and then the descendants of the fork will assail are the the bargast and they're like the the human equivalent because they they were always saying before oh they might be imass some ways back but no they you find out later that yeah they they came from forkle sale interesting oh uh, the what are the other two the polyel and saliel mm, they're the, they're the also sisters. yeah they're also forkle mm. okay well listen <laughs> we don't need to get a whole down rabbit hole and it's an interesting <laughs> thing i didn't know about this um um but that's some ancient genealogy, I suppose. Um, I guess I was always thrown off. Usually he's just drawn as just like a dude, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Um, in, unless you like, but he can make himself look like pretty much whatever he wants. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's a god. 
he's in human form, thing. but yeah. Well, right. anyway, but, but, but you know, back onto it, I suppose. Um, yeah, so I guess all the races are represented towards the climax of this book. Yeah. Although I guess I, the change, I think the change of mall involvement. That only—that's one of those things that they were asking me about. You know, I do get kind of it does kind of come out of left field in a way if you don't if you're not in on it in a way you know what i mean yeah they, they could change them all and also i think i carry him storyline like this this book is very much just set up oh, for later plot yeah. points 100 they and, just like are there and then yeah it's setting things up <laughs> that are gonna happen later in the series and then even i carry him i feel like his entire storyline is just setting things up that don't even happen in this series so no they they happened we just didn't get to see the immediate aftermath right right it's but it's setting up storylines that are are not gonna take place in book of the fallen i I know what you mean it feels like 50 years in world there could be a different series that like the acarium stuff would be the ancient lore about you know (laughs) oh do you have uh any plans to read the god is not willing pete yeah i read that book yeah we talked about on the show i talked to andy smith about it um yeah I liked it a liked it a good deal. Good book, I think. Um I uh yeah, yeah. No, I think it's one of the better things he's written. So it, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, but that is where we start to see some of the aftermath of Icarium's actions in these books. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where we start to see the new Warrens and, and the new magic and what's what's actually yeah, I guess, the result. I guess I just mean I don't feel like that's fully a, I don't know. That I I'm so focused on the because I feel like that's anyway. We can talk I, about I, that I book like, more. No, Good no, book. No, I, I, like I, I want to stick with Reaper's like Gale, but uh, yeah, yeah, there are definitely aspects in this book that you're not going to get a payoff here. No. Um, but um, if you're at book seven, you're you, you're probably used to that by now, I would expect. Right? <laughs> this is. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. You made it this far. <laughs> I feel like I just really liked the unwitnessed speech because I think going through it the first time, I didn't really have context for what was going on with Tavor, you know? Um, and then additionally, I think clicking into that with contrasting with that to how I feel Carsa, which is, I feel like is a very personal contrast, you know, I just think it's very interesting, very interesting thematic overlap, the speech rules. And not only does it rule on a plot level, it just seems very uh, key. I mean, it, I don't know. It's part of the big thesis of the series, you know, it is. And it's, it's a I, lot it, more emotional when the second time through, I think, no. because the first time well, through, you feel the same way the soldiers do when they hear it, which is basically what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. What do you mean? on <laughs> <laughs> Was it Child of Honor who was making the joke about the th- theme of Malazan as if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it doesn't make a sound? No, but I, I mean, I get I get the joke, right? Like I because this unwitnessed statement is kind of like a personal creed, right? I mean, it's kind of like just mm-hmm. saying it's kind of asserting that, right? That you need to like, I don't know, just accept you're going to do good and it be it, it be unwitnessed, you know? I don't know. It's kind of a moral duty or something, you know? I don't know. It is a great moment. There's there's no such thing as moral duties in non-political works of fiction. Nice. Never. (laughs) Um, uh, So Cal, we never really got to, we we were looping back around to it from this first question. So when you, when you talk about this, your favorite book, like why do you say this is one of your favorites? The sheer amount of, uh, hell yes moments that happened in this book. Um, mm. And then there's one character who only appears in this book is very near and dear to my heart. And uh, that's my boy Beak, mm. who I will not cry while talking about Beak. Okay, I've said it. Now I won't do it. All right. But his it, it impacted me in a uh, very positive way when I first read it. 
Mm. And it's just, um, it's something that's stuck with me kind of ever since. And so I'm always going to love that book. Just, I really love that book. (laughs) (laughs) I realized uh, right before you asked that question that you had asked me why it was one of my favorite. And I feel like I set up a lot of, of negatives, all of the really difficult parts of the books without getting to the fact that because because that emotional gut punch, it just hits home in this one, it makes those moments of triumph hit that much harder. So that when we have those beak moments, or I, for me, one of them is uh, Fiddler on the Roof with the cusser, <laughs> so just ruin <laughs> Ryan's. When you have those hell yes moments. Fucking dragon. Yes, it's, uh, it's incredible. And when you have that humor, when Hellion comes, it's like this breath of fresh air, and it, it makes everything hit that much harder. Yeah, I mean... Uh, we were talking about Midnight Tides, how that book really kind of uh, the way it uses tell and some other humor stuff. It's a real kind of tightrope thing in a way, because like that's also a pretty dark book. But then like, I don't mm-hmm. know, the whole series uses humor to uh, pretty well, I think. I, d- I do think it's it's a weirder thread because I actually feel like the balance I feel is not on like it, it's not that it's not on point. It's I would say this is just a bummer book. It's mostly in the way that I think Dust of Dreams is a pretty bummer book. I think this book is also a pretty bummer bummer book. And it's not like all of many of them are super upbeat beach reads or whatever. But um, I definitely walk away from Reaper's Gale, even with the triumphs, still feeling like, you know, you're like, that's, you know, I don't know. Like, how in the world are they going to come back from this? Well, you just walk away feel like, man, psych. (laughs) People can be pretty bad to each other, can't they? You know, and I don't know. That's really underlining the way some of these things are bad. You know, I don't know. Hmm. Not a life affirming book. Like like Helene is a war criminal, right? She's she's basically a war criminal. She goes from. (laughs) Sorry, I missed that. Who? Helene. She's yeah. basically a war. She's she's committing war crimes. She's just she's but winning. She she's so funny when she does it. I didn't even realize there were war crimes until later. Well, that's one of those <laughs> things. I think it's very interesting. I feel like I'm more tuned into kind of the weird questioning the Malazans have at this point, where they're like, "So we're Malazans? Question mark. We're invading Lether? Question mark. We're you know like what are we doing? You know, it's very interesting. You know." About like, their well, relative well, status as here? imperial soldiers, you know? She's just winning hearts and minds, Cal. <laughs> <laughs> winning hearts and minds. I was about uh, a big fist pump moment when I first read the book when she was like, we're going tavern to tavern. Mm-hmm. I distinctly remember being like, hell yeah, my girl. Yeah. And, and uh, however you may feel about her methods, essentially she is one of the only people in this book that actually zeroes in on what the real source of oppression Mm. is and then attacks it Mm. she figures out who the debt holders are and goes after them and then you know reaps the benefit by letting them buy her drinks in the bar and sleeping in the (laughs) inns and um it works it's a (laughs) win-win except for all those people who lost their heads (laughs) but you know what they're at war that was gonna happen anyways (laughs) at least there's some sense of satisfaction in who she chooses to go after that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) (laughs) someone has to make a is hellion an american video and i think i'm gonna do that that's probably a good idea yeah there we go i'm pretty skeptical that the next god of willing book is going towards letharis um but 
I would love to know more about the details of this because obviously we spend such, you know, we get a brief picture of it, I guess, in, in the rest of the series. But it is one of those things, I think, because this book's talking about this weird, the powers we hold and what has power over us and how these institutions work and all this stuff. You know, the the idea that it ends in, I would say, a fairly simplistic way of like, well, we're going to kill the rich people and then a good guy's in charge of the empire. You know, it, it is like... To me, that is like an obvious, not an answer to the whole book we just set up of how these problems work, you know? Uh, yeah. So it seems like the start of an another interesting conversation, but that's just like the book goes elsewhere and we're not, you know, we're not meaning, it's just not a part of what that I, is. Well, you know? no, I, I I personally find it fitting because there are no easy answers and he, like, this book isn't going to come in and say, oh, this is just how you fix all of this. Mm. Um in the end, we do get this victory and we do get a lot of those issues and a lot of those things that had been a source of frustration and anger throughout the books wrapped up. And it almost entirely comes down to luck to a whole lot of things lining up just right and working out. The bone hunters got lucky. They did. Um, but I think that's appropriate because because this book can't solve our problems. But but don't you think the book supposed is like wants us to feel good at the end when Tell's on the throne and joking around and and I'm I was kind of sitting there like this doesn't seem like a win to me I don't I don't know what happened and I don't feel good about this you know he's got Bug the Eldritch God of the Seas with him how could he possibly screw it up <laughs> I didn't say that with a so straight you, face you didn't have that sense of satisfaction with the ending even if we understand that. That really, this was a whole lot of stuff lining up just right. And yeah, T-Hall ending up on the throne is a little crazy. Although I think having Rucket on his side and a lot of things already other in place behind the scenes helped out. Um, that there wasn't a sense of satisfaction for you in, in sort of being able to see actual change take effect by the end. I guess I the, it's the change that I feel more questioning about. And that's why I was talking about the kind of the future of it, because to me, you know, if the book's so much about imperial systems or financial systems or systems of kind of enslavement in a way um, of systems of debt and, and to kind of have it be like, well, a guy we likes in charge now um, and a cool God. And he says he's going to do different things. I mean, I, I, I don't find that a very satisfying answer to when talking about institutional or systematic problems. And, and I think it, it, there's many times where cool guys who have said they're going to change things has not really worked out. And I, I, I think it <laughs> and I and I think it's to the power and it speaks to the power of systems and institutions, which this book is very much about is kind of wh what has power over you. Or are you going to change to the power? Is the power going to change you? And, and I, I just feel like I would love to know more of where this story goes, but I, I don't think we're actually going to get that in the Carsa stuff. It, but. In, so, so it sounds like the storylines hit too close to home and therefore we, you can't have that same like, suspension of disbelief that you can in most fantasy books or even within these books because it's like yeah but if i apply that to the real world this solution isn't a practical one it's not actually the solution well, it's, yeah it's, i mean it's like uh, yeah it's there's like a sense of like tell, cool oh sorry go go cal you know how people would like you know talk about if i ruled the world i would do xyz and other stuff. I'm sure everyone's done it. Like everyone's played the if I won the lottery game. Sure. And then extrapolated it further than that. So what if I was actually literally 
the most important person on the planet. Like, what if that was actually me? Or maybe I'm just uh, a narcissist and no one else <laughs> I'm has with ever you, done Cass. But <laughs> I, th- I think, you know, once you actually start pressing somebody on some of that stuff, the answers that they give, while they may sound good, may not actually work out at all. And mm. it's like, you know, it's bo- it boils down to who that person can trust. And then, okay, well, if I'm going to give them power, what are they going to do with it? So at the end of this book, we get the best possible version of Tehal's, okay, if I can become, you know, king of king of the leather, like, how am I going to do it? And then we don't really see how it goes after that because like, okay, we have a terrible system. Let's replace it with the smartest and most capable. And so far, the one of the most deeply moral people at the absolute head of it. And then we don't find, we don't get to find out what he does. But Peter... I mean, I get where you're coming from, Peter, but I don't want an entire book about how T. Hall moves the iceberg. <laughs> what are you talking um, about? Bug would do it. And you would ask him well, why no, it's taking and, so long. And I think it literally comes down to a kind of dramatic point. And I think this is more what Steve means about being political in a sense, because because obviously there's a type of dramatic catharsis when you have Tehol and it's like, yay, Tehol won. He kind of did the thing, you know, and um, you feel good. But, you know. In large, the series, I would say, is not very invested outside of kind of larger, I would say, almost spiritual, metaphysical points in a way. Like, it, it, it isn't making a positive argument for a type of government governance or societal structure. I mean, I think, like, I don't know, there's some small lines, there's some small parts, like there's that part in Bone Hunters where they're looking at that tribe that shares stuff, and they're like, maybe that's good. You know, there's flashes of this type of stuff, but largely it's more about looking at our current types of societies or, you know, inequalities or that type of stuff and reflecting on that and not kind of imagining an escapist alternative, a utopia, some sort of ideal society or something. So I do get it because I do think, as you said, if Steve sat down and write 500 words about Tehol, who's a cool guy and made the best government ever, that's actually like super good. You know, yeah, I don't think it would probably be a great book. You know, I don't know. That doesn't sound like the uh, recipe for great drama. So I, I, you know, I do get what you're getting at, although the iceberg thing was a good joke. So, uh, <laughs> but I do think it's in line with the ethos of the book, you know, in, in regards to that. Each, each race kind of has their own political ethos mm. that, yeah, definitely. Is is taken to the most extreme in each case. So and like with with Jaghut, you have the absolute isolationism, right? Of yeah. I don't know if that would be necessarily libertarianism, but we'll call it that for now. And then um, Libertarian Jaguts is a funny pitch <laughs> for the record. <laughs> then the Kachin Jamal are a form of collectivism. Mm, sure. And it's it's the hive mind idea taken to its most extreme. And even still, their big problem was they fought each other a bunch, mm. right? And then you have uh, the IMAS, who I'd say are more closer to socialist than communist, if that makes any sense. And they also decided to commit genocide. <laughs> and then you you get humans who uh, seem to just fluctuate just towards fascism and monarchism and haven't really moved on from it. And then they fight kind of across time. Mm. No, 100%. But uh, all I meant really is when it comes to looking at any of these structures, I mean, the, 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 Steve and I is often more diagnostic or talking about the ways we're cruel to each other, way these systems exasperate that, and not like, here's a great system I came up with. We should do this. <laughs> right, you know? right. It's yeah. not necessarily prescriptive. It's really 
Mm. about examining and taking apart and looking at the effects and the consequences. And I think giving us a different perspective or way of looking at our own world. No, no. Is it it kind of metaphor for, I guess, humans in the face of climate change? Because all right, that came out of nowhere. So how are we relating this book to climate change? I mean, obviously, uh, hit me, hit me. I'm all ears. Well, so the the iceberg is the the first symbolic thing that comes to mind. Mm. That it's been there forever. Now it's not going to be here. What is it going to do to everything else? Not only does it like destroy several towns and kill a whole bunch of people, but now part of the topography of the land is gone and. Mm. That was because a jag hut did a spell, whatever, how many thousands of years ago. Now it's finally going away. And they have to deal with the consequences of that. Now, is it, uh, I think it's directly Sin's fault because she's melting it. Yeah. And, you know, the, what is it, the, the eye mass. Uh, okay, so the, they probably, like, it's like if uh, Neanderthals um, literalized the Ice Age into being caused by a race of people and then killed them all. And so that's in like in the face of in the face of climate change, how do these systems sort of interact with the world? And so far it just keeps being like, well, they kill each other a lot. Children are dying. It's the whole the whole deal. I do think there is something to be said about how I think in a classic sense, man like thinks they have power over nature. And, you know, it's like if you're talking about power, you know, man and nature is a whole whole it's a whole fucking genre of books, you know, so. To yeah. build a fire is probably the most depressing. Yeah, I think I think uh, Dusta Dreams is where he delves more deeply into that. Mm. For me, this one, yeah, it's it's very much about oppression and the things humans do to one another, and then how they react I agree with that. to that. Oh, bummer talks. <laughs> well, no, yeah. I came in ready to defend this, and now I'm getting. Uh, we feel like we're, we've ended up just. Well. Well, I, I don't, you know, I'm not really here to, you know, lay it on the book. You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm glad. I feel like it's been a very predictable thing. All the books I read the first time and were like, I didn't like this one so much. When I reread it, I was like, yeah, it's better than I remembered. You know, it's by having the same reaction every time. So um, it's usually better than you remember, yeah. and unless and it's usually it's a little Stephanie worse Meyer than book. I remembered. If I think it was great. Yeah. <laughs> I, the the second read through for me is uh, is where it's at. It's the most rewarding read through like it, it's it's better than the first i think um, oh way better than the first having yeah. a way better time than the first read through you know yeah. my, my only so, wish is that i could read it on my own pace because sometimes because of the way the show's produced i have to like read two chapters and then wait a few weeks and then it's like i don't know it's a very weird pace to read a book you know hmm. yeah, yeah I, I can't i, I can't imagine you you're gonna be what in your 40s by the time you finish is that about right that's what i mean it's like we read one book over five months or something it's not an ideal uh not an ideal way to do it for me (sighs) yeah Uh, okay i'm gonna talk about three things i really 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 liked sure in this book lay it Uh, on me all ears first is anytime like the malazamarines have to step into the way of something that is so beyond their level they shouldn't be in the building Mm. where like the demon farmers Fun stuff. Right? Like those are eldritch beings from a different universe who want nothing more than to kill. <laughs> and now they've started a farm. They're farming now. They, they took out a fork roll of sale in the last book. I mean, yeah, this but is they they chased it off. And we don't yeah. know if it actually killed it. It's but true. They got out of pit, yeah. so it was <laughs> more than most do in the face of a fork roll of sale. 
basically they're badasses. We know they are, right? And mm. uh, mm-hmm. and they and the and the bone hunters went and knocked on their front door. <laughs> <laughs> I just I love St- Stormy and Gessler's reaction to the whole thing. <laughs> They've blown the heck out of both of them with with cussers and watched a couple of their marines die, and then they hightail it out of there. And just screaming, demon farmers, Fid. <laughs> what is going on here? It's a demon farmer. It, it's just such, it's like a, like one of those 1967 to 1980 something Vietnam movies where like they, you know, step on a man- landmine and the, everybody gets swamped. And then like three seconds later, the, as the soldiers are running away, they're, <laughs> exclaiming and it's actually funny instead of it being just terrifying um oh. which it should have been but you know I, I i love it when the the book is able to do that it's uh but steve loves having those little gags like that in there you know and of course beak uh, i've already mentioned beak mm. um <clears throat> but i think the third is actually the andy leosin edor info we get in this book mm. Um, cause we, we had the, the three sisters, um, Menendor, Sekul and Kadu and the other one, Sheltathalor. There we go. Mm. I remembered them all. Uh, and their whole dynamic and how that's basically even Andy and small groups treat each other when mm. they're draconic. And it's, it's kind of like, a it's when then in, what do you call it? Um, the next book told the hounds, we get that kind of explored even more. But from not in, not the three girls, we get it from Anamander and his relationship with um, basically his group that he keeps with him in Moon's Pond, which is apparently the last view of the Andy. And it's just, uh, I, I like that stuff. I, I'm stoked to revisit Told the Hounds, uh, probably my favorite of the books. I will say, um, just so this can go on air and, you know, my co I haven't told my co-host. I, I pretty much think they're not gonna like the book. I don't know. That's my official hey, guess. Uh, I, told told hounds. I I mean I just think it's a, I just think they're gonna complain about it being very long and slow. That's yeah. my personal expectation, but I'm not saying it because I think if they know I think that, then they'll be like, Oh, it's even longer and slower than I you know. <laughs> so I'm like just dead silent about you know, but uh <sighs> Told the Hounds is a tough one. I think, uh, yeah, you tend to land on one side or the other. Although I'm pretty sure I've landed on both sides, depending on, like, I think the first time through, I didn't like it. And then I remembered not liking it. And so the second time through, I was like, oh, it's pretty good. And the third time through, I was like, no, this is, this is long and slow and boring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, I'm, I'm very curious about it because I didn't like the first time. And the second time I was like, this book absolutely rules best book in the series. So I wonder how I'll feel revisiting it the third time, you know? Well, it's um, it's a study in causality, that book. Yeah, it's well, uh, it's just it's so many things. I love that book. Um, it's a bunch of setups and payoffs yeah. stretched over nearly thirteen hundred pages. Yeah, like here, it's very, it's very good. What? <laughs> very long book. I do get you know. I if people don't like the book. I get it. You know, I'm not gonna you know whatever. <laughs> what are you saying, Jen? Jen? <laughs> Oh, I was going to bring it back to Reaper's Gale, actually, because Mm. I think for me, yeah, the Bone Hunters are what make this book. And part of it is just having so many, I mean, having T-Hall and Carissa and Hellion and all the Bone Hunters in a single book for me is heaven. I'm getting all my favorite characters all in one go. But 
We can talk a lot about empire and the Malazan Empire in particular, but having this group that really has disconnected itself from that power and has come up in a different version, very different version of empire from the Letheri one, in which their individuals actually do have a sense of agency and value and the ability to influence the things around them. There's not that same sense of powerlessness that you see in the Letheri storylines. Um, right. And then we see it play uh, out. Malazan citizens have rights. Yes, they have rights. And, and even within the army, we have, mm-hmm. there's that that willingness to allow even the lowest ranking soldier to give input in decision-making, that they're allowed to mm-hmm. speak up and say, yeah, this is really dumb and <laughs> I think we should You're do something else. You're going to get else. us all killed. Um, and, we, and, and we see that in the... Um, strategy that she used because really she's just setting them loose and saying, do your thing that Mm -hmm. you have the ability to go in there and make the decisions you need to in the field based on what you find when you get in there. And they do in, in lots of different ways. It pans out completely different for each group that comes in. The other piece that we see is um, that ultimately that is what saves them all because Sort, first of all, is able to choose who goes with her and has that mindset of seeing that everyone within this army has value and something to contribute and recognizes that in Beak when really no one else Mm -hmm. could. And I love Beak, but honestly, this book made me love Sort just as much. And I never thought I would forgive her after she stepped on Joyful Union in The Bone Hunters. (laughs) (laughs) But... (laughs) But she did. Been st- I've been stung by a scorpion, and I uh, sympathize entirely. <laughs> yeah, I was. No, no, no. I was with Bottle on that one, man. That was not cool. She was like the worst boss ever, right there. Oh, um, I could, I could understand why he was mad, but I would have stepped on that scorpion as well. Uh, but that essentially, Beak, Beak's power didn't grow in this book. He had all of that power in the Bone Hunters, yeah. and he did nothing in Egatan. And the reason he did nothing is because he had no sense of self-worth and didn't believe he could help, right? He didn't dare to speak up. It's sort that gave him the opportunity and that gave him the confidence to make that decision, to to believe in himself and to step up and say, yeah, I can do this. I can do this for my friends and I can save them. And they never would have succeeded without that. And that to me, I mean, it's... It's not the book where I fell in love with the Bone Hunters because I think that happened long before, but it really, this one sealed the deal for me because we really get to see all of those things that just make them great, that make them amazing. Um, plus, we have so many great moments. I, I said already, it's one of my favorite lines. I know this is, you know, three million words of absolutely gorgeous prose, and the one line I choose from all of it as my favorite is fucking dragons. <laughs> 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 God, that moment. Um, Carsa slapping with all and saying, don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, what was it? One of the eater mages or one of the Letheri mages who says someone gives answer when they un- unleashed the kill everybody spell where Beak does his moment. Uh-huh. Um, it like it's either the eater squad or the Letheri captain up on the top of the hill before it gets, you know, Uno reverse carded back at them like the 
there he's asking what's going on and he's just like someone over there has given us an answer for what we've cooked up and then it goes terribly for them which which i was like the the theme of of giving answer is it's it's a series wide but um it really kind of hits its stride here i think Sorry, just really been thinking, Jen. It was a great comment you had. Um, I was really lost in it, so sorry. I missed. I missed some of that. But um, um, well, what I was just thinking about really is you're contrasting the Malazan and the Lothari Empire, and then you're even talking about this individualism. Um, which, which for the record, I always found a bit curious because to me, it, it goes to kind of I would say some of the strangeness of how Malazan, the, the actual Malazile Malazan, um, is drawn sometimes because. You know, I would say military institutions, armies are institutions highly invested in conformity and stamping out individualism in a sense, um, yeah, typically, typically, you know, yeah. so so it's it's a very strange thing in a way. And I, I do think it comes down to a very different way in which the Malazan and Lothari empires are drawn. In some ways, I would say the Lothari empire is almost comically like hyper imperialistic and you know whatever it's like it's like everything is cranked up to an 11 you know yeah which is a very contrast to the malazan thing which i think is a much you know that more resembles something where humans live you know where they're you know they're like colonizing seven cities but it's that feels more related to like how people live their lives so so i do i have a long thought about the contrast between the two I would say the two main empires within this series. Of course, there are others and remnants of others, but these two take up most of you know the modern time. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting comparison in a way, not only about the individuals and the soldiers, but the empires themselves. So, yeah, well, uh, another comparison that could be made is is you look at the handling of the all versus the Wiccans mm. in the development of the Malazan Empire. Mm. Um, where, granted, the Wiccan story did not have a happy ending, and <laughs> um, that, yeah, that particular storyline was especially heartbreaking with the sort of rewriting history. But, but if we go back to the start, where essentially Cullen Ved goes in and recognizes that, again, these are people who have something to offer. That if we bring them in, they could make our empire greater. We could become something more than what we are. Whereas Lothari Empire like, does not see it that way. There is no value in human life. There is only value in resources and money, essentially. You could, you could say the exact same thing about the Malazan Empire, though. And we we are in the Malazan Empire. We are in the soldiers' POV. So I, I think we grant them a lot more leeway. But yeah, when, it, when it comes down to it, they're uh, they're both taking over everywhere. And sure, you can I, sign a treaty with them, but eventually your people will become our people and they will no longer be your people. They will be a part of the Malazan Empire. And they may have a heritage and everything else. I am not here to Malazan. defend empire. I want that. Oh, no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't no, uh, But I, I do I, think I, I the contrasts think are interesting in the ways in which the Malazan Empire veers from sort of the typical path of empire that we know from our own world. I, I think. I think it makes. I think it's thought provoking, and I think it's interesting to compare that to the Lethari Empire, which is is very much a reflection of empire as we think of it today i think 
Yeah, in a weird way, I almost feel like the Letheri Empire is more making like a, a big statement about these types of structures in like big bold letters and stuff. And yeah. I almost feel like the Malazan Empire almost just serves more as like the Starfleet that is like functions as how we're telling the story. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it gets interrogated more than Starfleet ever does. But um, you know what I mean? I feel uh-huh. like it's a lot of the times like it's the way into the story. It's like, all right, there's four Marines. They're here doing this thing, you know? And then like, I don't know. So I often think it's like, that's what is the plot entryway. And then everything else is being explored about it. But um, I know we're not talking about God is not willing, but that's like that's a whole other conversation about the soldiers in those books. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I, the answer but, is I don't know for the soldiers in that that I need more but, of the but, story but, to figure it but, out. Yeah, but to, to loop it into back to this book, which is why I think it's very interesting. Then, as uh, as I mentioned, I felt particularly attuned into this time to this question about Lacine's army, not only of them asking logistically, like, oh, what are we doing with our strategies, what are our tactics, but also this kind of. I would say almost spiritual identity crisis question of who are we? What are we doing? What do we represent? You know, we came from an empire. We are these military. So, you know, it's, it's an important question to the series, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and not because I think uh, there were many like Malazan empire, true believers in the army. They weren't out there trying to bring freedom to sure. <laughs> all the <laughs> continents around the world. But, but because, even when they disagreed with it, even when they hated it, they knew why they were doing what they were doing. Mm. And right, but it's a it's an interesting conversation on on a series level for the like just malice and empire and ethics, basically. But it's like I'm sure AP has said this first. He said I'm everything first. Say it anyway. But um, it's like that scene in uh, Monty Python and uh, the Life of Brian. Uh, what have the Romans ever done for us? Mm-hmm. The aqueduct. Sure. And then the roads. Well, the roads go without saying. Yeah. And it, it's a whole joke. Um, and it's a funny joke. But <laughs> it's like that premise is taken much more seriously. Well, if that makes any sense. It's it's funny because I think I think that it is it is right to push back against systems that are oppressive. I also think that anytime mm-hmm. you start to fall into black and white thinking and and viewing a particular thing, especially one as complex as as an entire political system or an empire as evil, all evil or all good, that you're oversimplifying and not seeing the full picture and that you can recognize the benefits while still acknowledging the drawbacks, right? That there are... Yeah. And that doesn't, like I said, like, I'm not here to support Empire. That's not why I made that argument. But that doesn't this mean that I'm not capa- I am anyway. capable of seeing where where they've done things well, where they've done things right. And to pretend that I can't because Empire is evil is just being willfully ignorant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, argument for me. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I guess it's one of those things I always feel like it's like, yeah, but in the big conversation, it's like that's I, I, it's just not a part of I don't know. L- l- listen, I, we're all not here. We're all on the same page, I feel, in some ways. But yeah, no, let's you want to argue. Real. Let's have it. Well, uh, uh, I, I don't know. I know what you're saying. It's like I, I, I obviously some part of me doesn't love making sweeping statements, but it's like when I <laughs> like, you know, like, do I want to make a sweeping anti-imperialism statement? Yeah, I don't know. Part of me feels like maybe there that is a time for something like that, you know, but. 
I, I do get what you're saying. Sometimes, you know, you're low to make I, a black I think and it's, white statement. I think that's a safe stance, and I would agree with you. But I also think that Malazan Empire is not a real empire. It's a fictional empire. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that it is not, uh, it's something different, something I don't think we've ever seen elsewhere. And it's interesting to see how Kalanved's imp- approach resulted in a different outcome than the Letharia approach. Percy, and that's where part of my hesitance has always come from. It feels like, did we just write a type of imaginary empire where we highlighted some good stuff and then we don't spend that too much time highlighting? I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of Malazan bad stuff in the book. I don't want to act like it's not there. But I do think the some, the positive aspects of Malazan society get highlighted more than any positive aspect of Lothari society. I mean, basically every time in Letharis, it makes it sound like it's a purely shitty place to live where everyone sucks. You we, know? Don't, we don't get a lot of positive to and work there's a, with. Though. There's that lady who spends well, all the, of her time in the water. That sounds awesome. Ursto <laughs> er, Hubut's around. He's cool, you know, but... Um, it's you know, not a bad I, place I, to live if you're a god. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you know what I mean? I do think there's a lot of times that there's like kind of Malazan, like Malazan's pretty cool. Look, there's there's they're like they have a great meritocracy. They're a great place. I don't know. I do think there's some pro Malazan, some Malazan propaganda in the book. Oh, you man, will. you're just uh, Cam and Saad only writes pro Malazan propaganda. <laughs> Yeah, Malazan, the world big, is being, Malaz, big Malazan's paying off Cameron's I mean, it, it, It's important. The entire world's yeah, being important. run by the Dalhanese. <laughs> it's important to remember the guy's coming in with a bias here. I mean, they saved him. So he he's, is coming out with a bias, got, that's right. He's got an agenda, and you have to take that into account when you're reading the books. That's right. <laughs> um, anyway. His agenda is to man- emotionally manipulate you. Legitimately, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was being very literal. Yeah. No, no. I mean, uh, so anyway, we it, obviously it's a real contrast between the two members. I just feel like with Lethary, he's always paints. It's like such a stark, you know, thing. But whatever. Obviously, bigger conversation. Um, so is this the point where we ask you, what would you do if you were Tehal and then interrogate you on all of your answers? Well, see, that's what that's what I mean. I, 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 I think it's one of those easier things where, you know, sitting around and being like well i don't think steve's gonna be the guy well in a way i think that's what the books are about but steve i don't think steve's gonna be the guy who's gonna crack the human condition and figure out how to build a utopia where we all love each other you know but i do think that's somewhat what the book's about in a way you know so just not in like a political structure sense yeah it's more an individual message yeah i think but I think he wrapped some things up because he needed to. Um, and I think he also knew after a book like that, he needed to give us a somewhat satisfying ending. Um, mm. But that this book isn't really about that ending. This book yeah. is a is about asking those questions and raising those issues and not necessarily about providing the answers at the end. No, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, obviously raising more questions than anything else, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a book about disillusion and, and frustration. So. Yeah, it's going to raise a bunch more questions like that. There's that slave character who works for Udonis. one of <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I was him. making a joke. I was making a joke. <laughs> he work. I can't remember who he works for. He works for a factor, and yeah, I know who you're talking about. I don't the, know his he's name. He's the assassin, and then the market crashes. The eater are falling, and this guy has just basically said, "I've had enough," and he turns around and murders every single member of that guy's family. Yeah. Right? The implication is down to the children. Done. And it's like, okay, so you want to have a revolution. This is how that stuff happens. And Mm. it actually kind of 
does interrogate the okay, if we were trying to make a utopia and we're going to be able to do it because now we have great Tehal the only, the uh, the emperor with the god for a butler, and we're going to be just fine. Um, you know, how how does it still get done? Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. It's just one of those, it's like I said, the book's not, the book ends where it ends. It doesn't go on. Yeah, Jim, what were we going to say? I, I see that, but I also think that a lot of this, and Midnight Tides as well, is is about what systems of oppression do, and particularly slavery, um, to the people who suffer within them, right? And how they react mm. to that and the human responses. And that is one example. I see Featherwitch as another good example, who she's not one of my favorite characters. I'm not a big fan of Featherwitch, but I think when you have when you have oppressive systems, I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have those people within them, like thinking, let's go back to Eater and the slaves that, that just accept it because it is what it is and they can't change it. And so they're just going to do their best to get by within it. Um, you've got those who want to escape and run away and just dream about their own personal freedom. And then you've got those that want to change the system. They want freedom for everybody. But you also have people like feather witch who really just dream of becoming the oppressor to visit upon others what has been done to her um and that is a direct consequence of the system and i see that slave the same way that this is what they have created 100 percent agree i think it's important parallel being drawn between feather witch and adonis in this book and i think what and i think it paints it adds a layer a streak of gray through this big picture about how you know i think it can be very easy to note like to put some some sort of nobility in that type of suffering where you're like man the trauma it's so noble it's like these people are going to go through this experience and like learn some sort of thing and then like change the world you know and it like like life's just not this way and trauma's terrible and it affects people all these different ways and you know i don't know i there can be a real simplification of trauma in, in a type of conversation around that and she's obviously lived a da- bad li- ter- hard life in a lot of ways yeah yeah um, nice. it's one of the things I absolutely love about these books and appreciate and also makes me wonder if you are up for talking about Janeth at some point. <laughs> we can talk about it. Okay. Cause I think, go for it. I, I think it's, it's, it's the most difficult part of this book to read was for me. It's unpleasant. It's terrible. Um, but it's also something that I appreciate I like I, I do actually appreciate its inclusion and the purpose it serves. Um, and I don't know, I would be interested in exploring that with you guys. Sure. I'll come out. And then Cal, me and you have talked about a bit this before, but I mean, generally I'm more of a critic of this type of stuff in the series. And to me, um, there like, for example, I found that after kind of finishing Midnight Tides and reading this book, um, although I still have from frustrations writ large, I feel like I've come to really kind of connect with some of the Saren stuff a lot more. And I think Steve handles it really well in that sense, you know. But I feel really frustrated by this Janath plotline. I did not like it through the first time through. And th- this time around, I feel like ultimately, I feel like it's probably one of the worst ways he handles this stuff in the series. Um, and I feel pretty frustrated, not only because I don't think it adds a lot to the book, 
Um, I think Janet's in the book so little, and I feel very frustrated that her storyline fluctuates between her kind of being an object of sexual violence to Tanel to being kind of sexualized by Tehol, you know? And I feel like it, it really sucks that she spends very little time as a character, as a person, having an independent life outside of these two men. Um, so I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I could go on, but I, I was pretty frustrated throughout this book okay. about this plot line. But I will say, in my memory, it took up much longer in the book, but it, it's it's actually not as much as I remembered. I think it's just one of those things that, you know, those types of things stand out in your memory. But it, it was less than I remembered coming back to it. So, because basically Tenol's, basically in the first part, they go, all that stuff goes away for a long time and then it kind of comes back towards the end of the book for a bit. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, which was probably, I mean... I, I remember very clearly on my first read through that sense of frustration when Jesus fucking Christ again, seriously, like he got her out. She's, she's been freed from this. It sucks, but we're back where we started again when she is recaptured. It was so incredibly frustrating. Um, wow. And I think it wasn't until God, it might not have been until the second read through that I was able to actually understand I don't want to say I know what he was doing, but I where it clicked for me in a way that it really it just it connected in a way that I understood what what the purpose was. And maybe I could be wrong, but it's for me, it it was a message that I appreciated, I guess. Do you, do you want to speak on that? Or? Yeah, well, OK, so you want me to actually say th specific things and not just speak in, in vague. Uh, <laughs> sure, I guess I can do that. Well, no, that's that's fine. I just I, I didn't know if you wanted to share it or not. If you don't want to share, it's fine. So <laughs> No. Well, all right. So first of all, I do remember picking up on this the first victory. time through. I think a big piece of it is. Or yeah, you're right. It sucks for Janeth. And and maybe this is wrong, but this is one of those areas where I have to step back and not just see the character, but also see the book and the themes and the storyline and what it sure. what what is the purpose? Because when I come across something this unpleasant, this difficult to read, that's the first question I ask is what is its purpose? Why is it here? Why would something like this be inserted into the book? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that first time around, what struck me is the absolute desexualization of the portrayal of torture and it's clinical it, it is but that's not it because he's always clinical when it comes to sexual violence and i think that is important but but in this particular situation this feels like a pushback against the portrayal of torture and the capture and torture of women as a very sexual thing in popular culture in american popular culture at least I mean, you brought up you yeah. brought up Star Wars earlier, Cal. When is Princess Leia at her sexiest? Are, are you talking about when the she's flying through space? No, you're talking about the job, no. job of the hot thing. The yeah. She has thing. like she's, her. She's got the bikini her hands spread and the I was, collar. I was answer that question. Yeah, and she's a slave, <laughs> and that is not unique to that to those movies. It's pervasive. The sort of woman in chains with like artfully torn clothing that reveals just enough it becomes this sexy thing in in our culture and to me what this is doing is pushing back against this and saying it is not sexy this is not yeah, this is this is what it looks this is actually what it looks like yeah it's a delusional psychopath who yeah, is the, uh, taking advantage of a position of power in, in order to try to act out his own what he thinks his life should be yeah. And that is not a pleasant thing, generally speaking. Yeah. If you <laughs> you can 
put that almost in any society. And that is the worst combination you can really get. Yeah. And so it resonated with me because I grew up with those images Hmm. and I didn't like reading about it, but I appreciated it being there. It was like a, like a deconstruction of the exploitation films in the 70s. Yes. Like I spit on your grave and all of its sequels. And and the fact that you, you say we don't get to see her be her own person, but Janeth was a badass. She may have been Mm -hmm. chained up and unable to affect her own escape, but she was never powerless. She was a badass. Um, And And I beat him up. Yeah. I loved, I hated and loved reading her point of view because it was great to see this character that wasn't, because again, I think of all those images I grew up with of these sort of helpless women like ah, that are just waiting around for men to save them. And, and she was never that. Yeah, well, I agree. She obviously retains power in most of her scenes. And I think what you're playing on, very interesting point of view. Thank you for sharing it. Um, I think, uh, it, you know, obviously in, in, a, in, uh, in our patriarchal society in a way, I mean, like powerlessness is uh, often associated with women or kind of portrayed as something, um, I don't know, like patriarchal straight relationships have a very defined definition of power relationships within a relationship, right? Like a man aggresses onto a woman and that's basically how the relationship works in regards to power. Um, you know, this is what is told, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know what I mean? Um, so I do think, uh, there is an intersection there with portraying a woman at a point of like, ultimate powerlessness oh she's like a prisoner and she's like scantily clad or whatever it's like she has no power whatsoever you are like her jailer or whatever you know so i do think you're touching on something there and the other piece that i think i didn't appreciate until the second time around would be how her going ending back up in there contributes to the narrator and also pushes back against that whole hero myth and and the idea of the man coming in and like rescuing her and carrying her out um which is essentially what happens to her although it's a god and not a man but that more than that it's it's underscoring the entire theme which is that you know what bug did it made a difference to janeth absolutely um and makes for that great satisfying moment in which the guy goes in and saves the girl and we get that sense of all is right in the world, except it wasn't because the system still existed and in effect he had changed nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's where I see the fact that she ends up back there and T Hall does too, um, being this commentary on this idea that that sort of like the man coming in and rescuing her, but that really ultimately this is not that it's not important to make a difference where you can, because it did matter, even if it's only to one person, but that as long as that system exists, this will continue to happen. And if not to Janet, then to someone else. Right. I, it, it's weird. I get the, sometimes I get the sense that any, I think it comes from, this is why I personally think, I think it comes from a American neo-puritism that has been going around for, for a good bit where any time, anything sexual in nature occurs in fiction. There's a discussion on whether or not it should be there, which is like a not in my backyard to the utmost degree. And so I, I'm just, I'm curious because you, you said, you said this earlier is that, you know, it showed a, uh, a sexual dynamic between Kehal and Janeth post her first kidnapping pre-second um, where Telhall is as forthright and honest as he can be in that situation. And 
behaves like a good human. And then we get the, okay, well, why was this included? Question asked. So is it because it's of a, a sexual nature at all? No, I no, I don't feel or that way. It, I just think it, it, it kind of, you know, it's... In general, I think, you know, the men in this series are not sexualized as much as the women. And I think it kind of sucks that her one storyline involves her getting sexually assaulted. And the other storyline is like, oh, man, Tehol had this childhood crush on her. So I, I just kind of think it stinks that she that in both realms, she remains that object. And, you know, the, the, you know, so that's just I kind of rubbed me I, the wrong way. I, um, I'm not going to argue with you. I know exactly where you're coming from. And I. I agree. I do, except I am going to argue because I really do enjoy coming back with the like playing devil's advocate. And but, that, but honestly, I, I will just say you made some great points earlier. I'm really in, I, I'm really loving this talk. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it's very funny. We were going a long way and then we dived into the deep end of this thing. So please, really, you can go there. Um, Go. Yeah. I mean, I guess that does kind of suck. But you know what sucks worse is mm. the fact that those statistics are worse in the real world. Mm. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I guess for me, we're really just blowing into it. So so for a while, I, you know, I've been talking about these frustrations about on the show. And I think for me, sometimes my frustration mm -hmm. comes down to a lot of the times, as we kind of talked about in when we try to talk about Bitathol, which I think people really, we, we, we did not do a good job. I did not do a good job coming my frustrations. But to be through, I feel like I've been working through my frustration with this. Because I think you're right, Cal. There is just kind of a gut reaction that there is just like a, you know, of course you're like, you know, yikes, or whatever. You know, I don't know. I did it. It's an audio medium, but um, <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did the whole yikes thing. Was, yeah, um, we knew what he meant. But 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 to get what you're getting at, Jen. Sometimes I feel like there's a strange line where Steve's trying to have his cake and eat it too. I feel, and that comes why, down to ultimately. Why can't he? That's that's always my question. Well, that's just the point of making a cake is you're supposed to have the cake and you're supposed to also eat the cake. Nice. So um, what is the cake that you're upset about someone eating metaphorically there? I guess What's you have the specific to give the cake? cake to someone else. Yes. Um, well, what I mean is this. So Steve, in my mind, offers a very shallow world building around gender, uh, essentially hollow. And what I mean about that is in the same way that Star Wars and Star Trek does, you know, these books, these shows are uninterested in creating an alternative world, a world without patriarchy. I mean, this idea is such a massive idea. It defines other speculative fiction, you know, but ultimately these these books, Malazan, Star Wars, Star, they're not interested in this. They want to tell a different type of story story but they want to have women play larger roles so they kind of do a hand wave and we move on to other stuff which is fine but then i feel this weird clash when you want to talk about systems of oppression or you want to talk about sexual violence or you want to talk about you want to have that bitathol storyline or you want to talk about sexual torture See. and some part of me just feels like there's a layer of meaning missing if we're going to talk about what does the sexual world look like how is gender constructed in Letharis? What, how, how are men and women taught to relate to each other? You know, and it's to the point where we have a short That's point it. of view with Saren, and Saren Kenar says some, uh, you know, the, the guy, he says some misogynistic stuff too. So I'm like, okay, so is there a relationship with the patriot, like uh, with the patriotists in this? What is the connection to this stuff? And ultimately, I just walk away kind of feeling frustrated because I feel like Steve wants to write about power, violence, and some of these other themes. And I wish I knew more about this world. But ultimately, I come down feeling not only frustrated with some of the writing around women, but also just this kind of larger problem, uh, this larger feeling I have about uh, this. This is my this is a this is a frustration I've been having. So I think you move the goalpost twice. 
but I will forgive both of those. It's I, it, I, that's I, not I the, threw too that's much out. One, I, I threw too much I, out. That's what yeah, it is. Yeah, no, it, I'm it, like, I'm like, okay, I've got like four different points I ha- now have to make in response to that, right? I, 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 I've just been, yeah, okay. We, we but, just broke into it. We're doing it, baby. Here we are. We, we opened I, it up. I just want to say, I, I like everyone here. I'm yeah, not trying too. to argue all, with it's you. It's all good vibes. I'm having a blast. I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand what you're saying because sometimes when people try to communicate an idea to me and I try to simplify it to myself, I sometimes I get it wrong. And I'm not too good at extrapolation in that way. So I really want to figure out what people mean. Yeah, I, I, and so I, I'm going to, when, when you were like making a metaphor about the cake, I was like, did you just turn the idea of sexuality into an object <laughs> to make it? And that, that gave me a headache for a moment. But because it, because it, it seems that on the one hand, you don't want this thing explored. And on the other hand, then you say the thing that you, like you said, okay, um, basically, women involved in any sort of violent sexual interaction if you're not going to try and deconstruct the patriarchy while you're doing. So um, do, you, do you want him to actually talk about those things well, I, or do you not? Because that sounds like you were also trying to have your cake and eat it or not eat it in this case. I guess you wouldn't be eating any cake. I, I know what you mean. To me, it doesn't matter. You know, he listen, th- there's books about there's books that tackle sexual assault. There's books that are not. It could be either. It doesn't matter to me. And I, I think it's probably in some ways, you know, we've lots of people talk about it's good to talk about sexual assault. It's under discussed. I agree. So we're, we're in agreement about that. So I just find sometimes I feel frustrated that there's that there that there's only so far we can go with those conversations, you know, and, and that's where I feel frustrated with the books that it's both trying to, you know, not explore gender and sex and then kind of have many sexual violence plot lines. So that's something of frustration, I feel. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in there to, to unpack. And just so I think for me, part of it is that they really are two separate things because I, I don't believe that if you dismantle the patriarchy, you also eliminate sexual violence as a result. I agree. I don't believe those are two separate things. And I believe that you can have a society in which misogyny is not really a thing, where it's not a defining factor, of, a defining feature of that culture and still have violence against women, that sexual violence can still exist within that world. And that there are multiple cultures. So, I mean, like, we're just looking at it in world. I think there are multiple cultures that have developed separately from each other. And so that the attitudes in, in Letha are not going to be the same as attitude in the Malazan Empire or in Darujistan or wherever, that there are going to be differences in the roles of women between those cultures and between the races. We see that as well. And um, the roles of men. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so that's part of it, but not really the important part, I don't think. I do get where you're coming from, and I'm not even, it's not even that I want to defend it. It's more that uh, this- You said, said something very interesting. I think that the, I think that whenever you're reading a book, it's important to, especially something that tackles topics as big as these, it's important to look at the why. Why does this exist, Second, first of all? And secondly, to look at the time period in which it was written, right? That that is also a, an influencing factor, like who wrote it, when it was written, all of these things. Like, like that this book was created- it was not created in a bubble. It was created within a context. And so we can be all woke here in 2022 and talk about all the things that he got wrong. But I can also tell you that when these books were coming out as a woman who also enjoys fantasy, it was incredibly refreshing 
to have these women who just acted like people and didn't all need to like we didn't have to be stuck in this medieval mindset towards the genders. It was really incredible. And then to look at these issues affecting women in a way that no other fantasy series I can think of really did or has that 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 in and of itself was moving for me as a female reader. Um, Cal, you were saying something. Uh, I, I mean, I, I really I really uh, um, I want to respond. I just wanted to hear uh, Cal was trying to say. Something. Sorry, Cal. No, no, you're, you're good. You're good. Because that still makes this question a good question. Is because you said something interesting just a minute ago where you said it, it didn't go far enough into interrogating these ideas. Yeah, so that, that's basically I, I, how I, like, I, that's basically that how I seems, feel. That seems to be like the thesis statement huh. of what, what we got going on here. Even going back to the empire, um, is it, is it Mao's and propaganda or not? Right. Uh, I, 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 it was it's, a bit of a joke, it's but still, yeah, sure. No, no, it, 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 it's, believe me, I've been having this, this exact conversation, like to a T mm. about the Malazan empire with one guy in my server for about six months now where he'll, he has his point of view and he's going to say it and I'm going to read it. I'm going to try to find out what he means when he says this stuff. So this, mm. they didn't go far enough in interrogating the Malazan empire and what that means or interrogating the military and what it does and what that means is the same level of, okay, you included this, but I don't feel you interrogated the subject enough to justify including it. I mean, that's basically how I feel. I mean, when you talk about genital mutilation, I mean, this is a really fucking serious subject, you know, and mm -hmm. to I feel to broach that subject and not be pretty invested in interrogating it. I mean, it leaves me it leaves me frustrated. And I think that's where I walk away with, you know, and, and this isn't even talking so, about the, the, the women aspect or maybe how the women are written and anything. It just obviously I feel like, you know, like I'm fine if the book wants to tackle that. I just wish we spent more time doing it or Jen, when you're talking about, of course, these cultures develop differently. I mean, I agree. Of course they do. But do we know? We don't we don't know. A lot of this stuff is just. It's not what's on the book's mind. And and that's just what it is, you know? Yeah, I know. I, I guess I know exactly where you're coming from, which is why I very much tried to frame my answer in that this was my personal experience reading the book, not because and I really to write that. it was the right way to do it. But that this is how it hit me when I was reading it, because I it and there wasn't anything else like it out there. And it was really it was it it, it was an unpleasant experience a lot of the time. But it was also gratifying to see it there on the page and actually have it recognized within a fantasy world in a way that it almost never is. Yeah, I mean, I and I really respect what you're saying, because sometimes, um, you know, and that's why sometimes I feel frustrated, but I always try and keep in mind. It's just like, I, you know, I got to take these books for what they are. You know, I it, you know, the books not being what I another thing is not something you can criticize them for, you know, but um, it does. I do think these books obviously do more right by a lot of people than a lot of other books. So I'm not really here. You know, sometimes I feel like, you know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't it's not like I think these are the the worst. I don't know. I, I don't know. I know I'm being hard on these books or whatever, but I don't think these books totally botch it and are all, you know, but I think sometimes it, it's a mixed record. I be, feel, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't be talking with us. If it wasn't something you also liked. Yeah, obviously, okay? obviously, I feel pretty passionate. About, I, obviously, I feel right. invested in the book somehow, you know, but it's like I do have always felt 
I don't know. You obviously it tackles the subject a lot, and I've been thinking a lot about it on this read through. And obviously, I don't get to mm. talk a lot a lot on the show because when you talk about it, I feel like you can't help but talk about the whole series, or you're going to talk about the howling, or you just you. I don't know. I feel like you bring it up to the next level, you know, and you're not just talking about the one book. Or I, I remember and it's, it's not. Yeah. I, when I, I oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Carl. No, no, no. I was agreeing. I was all. I was agreeing. <laughs> I do listen to the podcast. I quite enjoy it. And and I am often reminded of my experience when I finally got my husband to read it, where I was so excited and I couldn't wait. And then I realized like, oh my God, I can't actually talk to you about this. Yeah. <laughs> like, We need to come back and have these conversations again, like after you've read all 10 books, because it is so hard to just talk about the events in a single book. And yeah, no else. one wants a 10 book homework assignment before you can have a conversation. <laughs> No. no one wants that except for insane people like me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Very, it's very funny. When I asked them to do the show, I was like, yeah, so it was like 10 books, but I really, I, I, I couldn't stress enough. I really didn't think they understood what they were getting into, but here we are seven books later. <laughs> um, Someone asked recently, and it's funny you say that, Jen, I actually feel like I'm more frustrated now that we're closer to the end than I was earlier, because right now I'm like, we're so close. We're like three books away and then we can just talk about everything. But then like, you know, it's better than when we were two, like, I don't know, on book two, I was like, ah, oh, whatever. We're talking about we're talking about this stuff. You know, they don't know any. you know, I don't know. But now I just am dying to talk about these big type of things, you know? Yeah, you're so close. Yeah. And then and then here's the thing is you're finally going to get there and then you're and done. Then we're yeah, exactly. Right? Fucking Christ. Like, the whole the whole premise, the whole reason for you getting together and talking about the books is no longer there. Only now you can yeah. actually talk about them. And I don't think you can cover all 10 books in a single like wrap up podcast. No, what, what that looks like, I don't fucking know. But that's. <laughs> A decision for next year, I yeah, guess. Yeah, no, I I feel for you. I'm laughing, but I I, I really really do because, uh, no. uh, yeah, I I understand the need to talk about these books and then that frustration and having them be so close and really still not being able to just speak freely. What kind of sucks though is because I I sure you watched some of what your guys were talking about. Um, but um, I almost wish we could loop the God is not willing stuff into this conversation about sexual violence. But I you know I think we should stay on these one but, right. Um, Right. I don't, I wouldn't want to. Yeah. But um, if people are reading along the podcast. I wouldn't want to spoil. Yeah. But that book, uh, that book, too. That's a really interesting follow up to that. And that, in a similar way, my, what I talked about with Andy Smith, I, I, we will, I don't know. We can be a little vague. I just wish I knew more about, t I wish I learned more about, it. I, I, I just end up wishing I knew more, you know, but I, I, I thought he handled it pretty good in that book, I feel. So, but anyway, we, we, we shouldn't do it. All right. I'm done. We're not going to do it. We're no, not going to no. do it. <laughs> I, it's it's part of because these books really are in, the way they're written. It, he's not presenting everything to you fully formed. It's not he's not spoon feeding. And so reading these books is an interaction between the reader and the books. And so I think the experience is and the way we interpret what we read is going to be unique to every reader. Yeah. Which that's the fun, right? Yeah. It's like I, I sometimes get frustrated with people when we've both read the same thing and somehow I, I either didn't understand it or they didn't understand it because they took completely the, the opposite from what I was reading there on the page to, to be there or not there in, in some cases. 
it is so, one of, it, it is one of those things almost where when I come in, Kyle, it's funny to say that when I t- talk about the show, since I think what you get out of the book is so much whatever you're going through or whatever's on your mind, you know, like wherever you are, some part of whatever's on your mind is being reflected back at you. So whenever I share something on the show, I'm like, this is what the storyline's about. I'm always just aware that like, obviously some part of me is just being processed through the book or something, you know, but I kind of think that's <laughs> right. what reading's about, right? So the consumption of information changes the information consumption or yeah i mean you're hearing a different (laughs) point of view but also you're kind of hearing what you want to hear or seeing what you you know it gets into that weird space you know Mm. well the just like in in conversation you're you're the end goal of conversation generally mm. i think across conversations is for people to agree with each other Mm. that's the entire point and so when in conversation you're trying to get the other people in that conversation to agree with you or you're looking to be agreeable to them. So when you take that and kind of extrapolate it out when writing a book, you want the person who's reading the book to be on the side of the book. And whether or not you can tell if the book succeeded in some areas or not is how many people thought the book justified its existence and agreeing with the book in some sort of context. So when you have something this big, when you get to the end, I don't think anyone's going to say, I agreed with all of that. And th- I think that's the point of conversation as well, is to try and reach that point where you do agree. And it's one man's very courageous attempt at trying to figure some stuff out for himself. Um, and there's really good shit in there. But it, uh, that, that doesn't mean um, you make a religion out of it. Don't do that. No, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, Malazan fans can obviously speak pretty passionately. And I think sometimes, you know, um, I feel like a weird I just nodded on an audio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel a weird sense because I think I, and I don't know how you got, I feel like it's like, yeah, it's like 10 really good books. And then there's like some parts that I think are okay. And then there's parts that are really, really great, you know? But, um, I do think it's best not to turn it into some sort of, you know, Steve Erickson Bible, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talk about that, What's interesting to me is, well, I was thinking about the fact that one of the great things about it is that it means there's so much room for discussion and for everyone to bring something different to the table when we talk about these books. Because, I mean, Malaztube is a whole thing. There are all of these servers and and podcasts dedicated to these books, um, and yet it never feels like a whole bunch of people just going over the same ground again and again and again because there are so many different ways to interpret and to understand these stories. I would say I agree with you there, except for new people reading Dead House Gates and Felicen. There's that, nothing no. new to be said about that subject <laughs> under the sun. 100%, time is a flat circle. 100%. And, and honestly, that's why I've spent less time on the Malazan subreddit, because literally half of the posts are like, I'm thinking about getting into Gardens of the Moon. Or it's like, Felison post. It's like, what are we, or Coltane was sad. you know. Or, but of course, you're going to have these like common points again and again. Mm. But I do think it's always, I don't know. And I don't think it's worse, bad. To, you know, a lot of people have very common readings. You know, if you ask anyone, like, what are the 10 books about? What's the thesis? You know, I think you're going to get 10 versions. In it. You're going to get 10 versions of the same answer, which is probably a good point. But I do think what you're getting at, Jen, which is true. I mean, I think so many people, and this is why I was excited to talk to you guys, since I know you guys are more into Reaper Scale, and it's like a book. I don't know. I feel fine about it, you know. <laughs> um, and 
it's always exciting when to talk to people who are like, I really love this book. Or I really love this part of it, you know, because you're seeing, I don't know, everyone has a different part that shines through of what they like or a, a storyline that speaks to them or that you see something. In it. And that's why I was really glad you shared that thing earlier, Jen, about what spoke to you about the Jan stop plot line. It's like, I don't know. It's like always really interesting and enriching to find out that stuff about that. By the way, Cal, I want to ask what you spoke to you about the beat plot line earlier, but it also sounded a little private. I didn't know if you wanted to share it. You don't um, have to. I was just saying. I, I did in a comment once, but the person who was reading the comment was kind enough not to put my name mm. when they read it. No, it, it's you cannot share it. The, fir- I, can, the first time, this can no, get edited I've, I've, out. I've, I don't think I've talked like actually talked about it out loud. I've only ever typed it. I think so. Uh, bear with me, but if Cal, the first time just, I was just once again, if you don't want to, sh- no, okay, it's okay. It's it's good to talk about stuff, even if it is uh, difficult. So. Uh, when I was reading this series for the first time, I was not in a uh, good spot just um, in life <laughs> in, in general. Things were uh, extremely stressful and I wanted that to be over. And then I also stopped sleeping for a period of time at the same time. So I was just not having a good time. So I I got to um, the point in that book where it's the, the climax of the Beak storyline um, we've heard some stuff about his at-home life, but we've never actually seen like a flashback, really. And um, it's when he goes into the barn and tries to rescue his brother, right? And Beak is an innocent. And I think his thoughts are, are real in the sense that they, they do make the most sense for an innocent to find this. And so it's the impact of what his brother felt that he needed to do that really just it, it it was a good thing for me to read and i'm glad that i read it um it's also a really difficult chapter to read in general uh chapter 22 and 23 of reaper's gale are are rough on the emotions right mm-hmm. um but it I, I do think it was important for me to read that when i did so um oh. i will always love beak well thanks for sharing that cal um uh glad we're talking and i i know what you mean and and in a in a way i uh you know uh i um yeah i finished the series in a pretty dark place i'll say and um (laughs) and and it's actually one of the reasons um i think because um i would not say i was really fully with it um in many ways during most of book nine and ten um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I could tell you what happens in the books, you know, but, um, I, 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 I fell, uh, let's say, I, I don't know. Reading those books was not my highest. I was not, I was not going on an emotional roller coaster by, <laughs> driven by Steven Erickson at the time. You know, I don't know. Um, so, so no, I went it off of Mr. Bones wild ride. <laughs> yes. And so, so some part of me is very looking forward to approaching, I don't know, to kind of returning to some of those books in a better place mentally. Um, mm-hmm. And just, um, I don't know. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, circum- circumstances matter. It, they do matter. That is uh, 100% no. true. <laughs> it touches on something. I can't remember if this is something you and I talked about or not, Cal, but um, this idea of both the importance of trigger warnings and also the recognition of the opposite effect that art can have where it can absolutely like like reignite traumatic feelings and experiences and yet it it can also be cathartic 
um, for the same reason. And and whether or not like which effect it has is completely unique to the person reading it and the experience and where they're at when they come to the books. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I um, I think that conversation is one that was it was kind of just ruined online by really toxic bad actors in a lot of ways, you know, Um, I feel like most of them. Actually, it's, it's not just this type of conversations. Yeah, hundred percent. The internet is it can just be a terrible place to have discourse. But I just associate like trigger war, trigger, you know, all this stuff. You know, it just did I did it trigger you? Is that it? It tri- it's just like the internet. Some so really, am I, am I connected with Quick Jen or Ben Shapiro? What's going on here? Fucking crazy <laughs> dudes. No, I no, I I mean I agree, Jen. I mean Jen. Like, no, the, um, the, I think no, I think it does have value. I think that that no, when we I, talk I know about that's triggers, it's saying. a real I, thing, and that it's something. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. It is helpful to be aware of when you're going into this book. Uh, mm. Yeah, I know that's not what you're saying. I I, I was just. I don't know. And some part of me is always loath to talk about it just because it's like online, just some fucking. I know. People I'm... need to like calm down a lot. It's like we're talking about a really minor thing, you know. But um, anyway, that's a whole um, cultural. But um, no, like I agree. I mean, I think that's why I actually I think I got into this book. And I think when you talk about an appetite to, I would say, tackle some of these heavier subjects. Obviously, we just kind of got off talking about that sexual assault stuff. And now here we're talking about some of the beaker and heavy stuff. You know, it's like, I think I only got into that at the time because I kind of discovered that, let's say, there was like a whole world of serious art and like art doing stuff and artists doing whatever, whatever, you know. You know, you like learn about more you know, adult fiction or something, you know, I don't know. Mm. Um, and you know, it's pretty crazy, you know, and it's a lot of, it's pretty revelatory. And like how you're saying, it's like, it's a lot of it changes your life. And you're like, man, this totally changes how the way I think about stuff, you know? Um, but also I will say, I think, and that's where some skepticism has grown in me over time where some part of me looks back or like, you know, I turn into a movie and I hear there's like a nine minute rape scene in it. And I'm like, I don't know, man. You know, it's like it, it, maybe it's like going to be fine, but I don't know. It's like I do think some skepticism has grown in me as we've come to like things that are tackling the darker part of life. But, you know, I don't uh, know. Anything I, quantified and stated in a dry tone can sound terrible. A hundred percent. And that's the thing. I Like I always try and give the artist the benefit of the doubt. You know, I think that's something you got to give the work, you know. But, um, you know, it, it is something that, you know, Art has to go there, but I do think some part of me has, I don't know, has, has has a more skeptical eye than when I was like 17 and just like consuming everything. And I was like, this is, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, there so, are. So let me ask you a really pretentious question. What do you think about the idea of the theater of cruelty? Uh, I don't, I don't really know familiar with the idea. So, okay. That's, that's your answer. It, it was a, it was a play movement. In the 1920s, 1930s, okay, where the guy wanted to shock the island, the audience so hard that he would introduce like actual pain, not like physical pain, but emotional pain, if he could get them invested enough into it, mm-hmm. and that the point of art was to make somebody realize something terrible, but maybe good, as long as it makes them feel something. Mm. And so, the, the, his, some of his plays make absolutely no sense. Talking about flies falling out of the ceiling and and blood spraying from the floor and 
people would try to act these out in the 1920s, 1930s with like props and stuff. So its prescriptives are absolutely bizarre, but they think the point of the art itself is to get someone to feel an extreme of emotion. Mm. So if you don't think that idea is any good, generally, and ge- not you specifically, in a general sense, if one, sorry, I forgot my English for a moment, if one accepts this idea as the correct idea with art, then no subject is off limits. Because in the theater of cruelty, the only commerce is pain. And so you want that person to have a connection to something and have it taken away from them or changed to make it not what they thought it was. Did a little did a little Googling here. Looks like one Terry Pratchett also wrote a short Discworld story called Theater of Cruelty. Just a fun fact. I haven't seen that. Will you send that to me? That's very cool. Anyway. Um, I want to read it. Yeah, I mean, uh, interesting stuff. Reading a little bit about the avant-garde theater. Obviously a total other world there. Um, but... In that regard, I mean, we can talk a little bit more. We're really kind of abstract now, but Jen, I'd love to know what you think. I would, yeah. ju- I would just say, f- for my two cents, I-, I don't know. I think that ex- uh, that only goes so far. I mean, when uh, I'm not saying this about Malzahn, but I just think in general, when people talk about shock value, I mean, that's kind of like at a certain point, you know, putting something very shocking on screen that's like gonna, or putting something ter- terrible on page, you know, like I, I don't think that justifies itself as like, man, I read a sentence about something terrible. It made me feel bad. This has some sort of value. I'm pretty skeptical of that argument. So. I, 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 mm. I, I have to say that, first of all, that cynical approach, because I do think a lot of it sometimes just is about the shock value. Um, I, I get that and I agree with that. And that even when there is actually some true message or artistic intent behind it, that there are tons and tons of examples of it being done poorly and very few of it being handled well and in a way that adds something new to the conversation or a different perspective. Um, For me, I'm not going to say the books are perfect, but these books for me hit in a way that resonated with me and so had value. Um, And I know that it won't for everyone, but that I think, I think they were done well. It was handled well. No, Jed, I mean, I agree. Obviously, they resonate with me. They have value. Um, and I think, I mean, uh, you know, Cal talks about just because I, I think they've changed the way I live my life in a lot of ways. Um, but when you talk about these motivators, something, I mean, I think that's what, to bring this back to what I kind of mentioned before, when I was like, when I was consuming all this like serious art with all these serious adult themes and stuff, I mean, at a certain point, you realize, man, a lot of these stories have violence against women in them. And that's like part of what makes them dark or serious. And I think that's, Jim, when you're talking about looking for stories that have value, bring a new perspective to the conversation, contribute in some way. I mean, I think that just has become a part of how, you know, I, I think about these stories now that, you know, you go, I don't know, I'm not 14 or 16 or whatever, you know. So, but that's just going to be how growing up is now, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Because, I mean, because, because the flip side is for me, and again, this is the perspective I have growing up when I did is, is not an absence of those things, but rather the opposite, these very like sexualized images of violence against women, that something like titillating and exciting about them. And, um, having that uh, context changed the way that I read these scenes. And to touch on that, because you, uh, you, you, you mentioned the word clinical before, and 
yeah, you know, obviously it's kind of withdrawn about it, you know, and like if you were if you were gonna say like, man, he really glams up the sexual violence, I think that's a pretty unfound criticism. I, and I make a lot of criticisms of his sexual violence stuff, but and, and I think and that's why sometimes I feel like I'm like, oh man, I'm really harping on about this stuff. But you know, if there were like, it's not like he gets every. It's like he does a bunch of stuff pretty good. I think. I mean, like it, it, it could be way way worse. Lots of people do it way 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 worse, but. You know, I, for, I don't know. I think it's still important to have that conversation and these types of conversations because it could be worse. I don't think is always like a great, you know, I don't think that's a great metric for things a lot of the times. I, you know, I agree. I, and I hope that wasn't the crux of my argument. No, no, I know that's what you're saying. Yeah, it's usually me. If you, you get all the way down to it as well, it could be worse. Uh, could be worse, you yeah. know, which, which for I the record is not always the worst attitude and like a personal, like, like type of gratitude sense. Listen, you know, I don't, but, I don't know that it could be worse than it is in these books, but it definitely could be handled worse. That's for sure. Well, that's, that's, it could be handled worse <laughs> and it is handled worse by many, many. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, oh man, we, uh, we really, we really blew up. I, I thought we really went a little long on this one now, didn't we? I, yeah. You know? I realized the second we started really digging into the Janice stuff, I'm like, this is not your hour long fun talk, Peter. This is not. No, it's you. good. We, <laughs> it, 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 in a, I think AJ will be like, why is the episode so long? And it's like 50 minutes in, we swerved into the heavy stuff, you know? <laughs> um, but no, it's great being able to talk about it. One other thing I did want to mention is that one part of this book, I felt like, I super connect like the fear Saren part, you know, that whole party, that crew, um, mm. really the jolliest quest. Loved, loved that section a ton. Loved it a ton. And I was really frustrated and didn't like it at all. It was my least favorite part of the book last time I read this book. So, um, it was mm. awesome to revel in it the whole time. And I think it's because I loved Udana so much in book five. I, was pretty disappointed. He pretty much does nothing in this book and was kind of just frustrated that all these characters were going off to do something I didn't care about. And they just sat around having conversations and that were sad, you know, in a sad boy style, like conversations like they do sometimes, but I was way more tuned into it. Loved it this time around. So, um, I would say one of the highlights of the books, you know, so, oh man, the amount of verbal shots Udinas throws, Oh my God! During He's that quest, brutal. Quest just, just stabbing, just ridiculous. Bah, bah, you know, nonstop. But yeah, he's the one who makes the joke about an eater stabbing an Andy in the back, like yeah, to nice. Silchas Ruin's face, which is awesome, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I guess when you, you know, are the the dad of a dragon, maybe your I don't give a fuck energy goes way up. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. Was there yeah. something? like specific you want to talk about with that storyline or no it's just, just one to throw it out i was thinking about other things talking about and i just remembered i wanted to shout it out for because after this i guess we'll talk to steve and then i'll probably be done talking about reaper's gale for a bit but um you know that's a good book good book no uh, I mean, we, I, did, we didn't even we didn't even mention apocalypse now in connection with their journey no but well the, the, their journey has a lot similar. of stuff going on that I was yeah, what for Jeff? me, it still isn't the most like it didn't resonate. It's still probably my least favorite storyline in the books. Yeah, but I'm in the in all ten. Well, no, no, the... no. Sorry, in this book. Okay, that makes in sense. This... I was like, oh, oh, all ten. Okay. That's a big pick. No, no, okay. no. It's not. They're definitely. I'm sure there are others, but in this book, it's probably the one I was least emotionally invested in, no. and that that maintains. I think uh, I still find myself sort of impatiently waiting for the Bone Hunters to come on screen. 
mm. because that's mm. that's where the those that's the stuff I really love. Oh, well, big talk. Feel feel well worn, but and the good news, I uh, you know, that was great, great call, great talk. Um, yeah, it's all it's you're lucky for you. It's like only what like two o'clock in the afternoon for you now. Yeah, is it too late? Is it too late for you? Is it like eleven nah, for you right now? It's eleven oh five. I'm doing fine. Wow. I'm usually up until about three o'clock in the morning. That's so. crazy. I go to bed at like nine. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well. uh... Anything else? Uh, anything else on our Reaper's Gale radar? Nothing book related. Jen, do you have anything you're working on? No. You want to tell people about? No? Uh, no, nothing. What about you, Cal? Um, I'm working on the dumbest project I've ever decided to do, um, which is a summary of every book with pictures and animations and stuff. Mm. And the script is really, really, really long right now. Um, I'm going to record all of it and then see what editing needs to be done. I expect it to be in excess of like six, seven hours when it's done, but it will be the definitive Malazan YouTube video. If anyone wants that in their life, uh, it will be available. I feel like now I should probably call out the cryptic cross, the Malazan cryptic crosswords on unabridgedburners.com because myself and Biggest Bad from the from Isker Direct's Discord server have been creating crossword puzzles for each book of the Big Ten. We still got two more to go, but we're going to get there. And if you like cryptic crosswords, it's kind of fun. That is a great plug. Did not know these even existed. Hell yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, they're fun. We'll have to get that link from you and put it in the description for the show. And thanks so much for, uh, thanks for coming on. It was a great chat and went a little long, but had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Pete. I enjoyed myself. Yeah, thank you. All right, everyone, that'll do it for us here today. Next week on the show is me and Iskar Jayark's conversation about a sale. And then the week after that, we talk to Ian Cameron Elsamont ourselves. So um, look forward to that. And then we'll be back talking to Steve towards the end of the uh, offseason before he do Toll the Hound. So thanks for listening, everybody. Um, See you.